0: For spectacular views and outstanding fishing, there are few places in the U.S. that compare to the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming. With literally hundreds of lakes in its roughly 100-mile long reach, the winds offer those who venture in a a once-in-a-lifetime experience of scenic views, including the state's highest peak, Gannett Peak, at 13,802 feet. With the exception of the Grand Teton and the Teton Range, the next 19 highest peaks in Wyoming after Gannett are also in the winds. It also offers outstanding backcountry fishing. Making sure that fishing stays that way is a responsibility the Wyoming Game and Fish Department gladly takes on each year. A crew of fisheries biologists hike into the winds, packing along their nets, scales, and measuring boards to determine which lakes are best for stocking, which ones could benefit from stocking, and which ones go fishless. Winter Region fisheries biologist Paul Garrity is a lucky man. For years, he's been sampling these lakes. He joins us on Get Outside to visit with us about the work that he does there, what folks can expect for their own fishing trip in there, and of course, how good the fishing is. Paul, welcome. We appreciate it. Uh, Begin with what you do with the Game and Fish.
1: Thanks for having me, Ray. I'm a fisheries biologist for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department in the Lander region. Big part of my job is sport fish management. I also do native species conservation, a little bit of habitat work, uh, Of course, lots of public outreach because so that's a big part of the job. so uh, so you you up there and you sample these
0: lakes. So talk about what it is that you do when we call it sampling. Uh, what's the agency's uh, management strategies there? All of it, I guess. What sort of fish we manage for, and uh, the tools we use to provide angler opportunity, but uh, maybe
1: just go into all of that. A little bit more background is the vast majority of the streams and lakes in the Wind River Mountains were originally fishless because of just different fish passage barriers like waterfalls. Uh, there's quite a few streams that actually, as they come out of the Wind River Mountains, they go underground and then they come back up above ground uh, more in the lowlands. So those were natural fish barriers. So for the most part, those lakes and streams were fishless starting in the late 1800s. And even through now, Well, really fish were introduced in the late 1800s and then even through maybe the early 1980s. And the Fitzpatrick Wilderness designation was in 1976. The Poposia Wilderness designation was in 1984. And part of those wilderness designations was uh, to really reduce human presence. And we are not allowed to stock any waters that did not have fish when those wilderness designations began. But we were allowed to continue to manage for fish that were already present in certain waters, fish that were indigenous. And part of that management is stocking. A lot of the lakes up there, we don't stock anymore. They were stocked one or two times, some of them over a hundred years ago. and. There's just natural recruitment. The fish successfully spawn and just maintain themselves. But there's probably in the Proposha Fitzpatrick wilderness is combined about maybe 25 to 30 lakes that we have to stock to continue to maintain fish populations. And the main goal of stocking those populations is to, is for sport fishing. As you mentioned, it's one of the most, I think it's one of the most amazing places in the world too. And there's so many lakes in the Wind River Mountains, it's good habitat for fish and it allows for world-class fishing. How far back into these wilderness areas do you go, Paul? depends on where we go uh we our trip this year we're going over 30 miles back and it's gonna be a long trip but i would say most of the trips are probably about 10 miles back you know sometimes there the trip we did last year was really short it was like five miles back sometimes we go a little over 15 it just depends
0: what kind of habitat are we talking here so like you say some lakes are good for fishing but there's others that just don't support it at all.
1: The fishless waters, the vast majority of those probably would support fish, mm. but they're just, uh, because of the wilderness designation, they're supposed to just be uh, kept in their original condition. There's There are some lakes up there that if they're too shallow, fish can winter kill. The winters are long up there and, you know, probably eight to nine months sometimes at the higher elevations, they can remain ice covered. And when you have a shallow lake that's ice covered, the lake can get anoxic and fish can winter kill. Um, We've also found at some of the really high elevation lakes, once you're getting like close to 12,000 feet, fish, they survive there, but not very well, it's just, too cold too short of a growing season and they don't do as well but the lakes that do have fish it's surprisingly productive up there like if you look at the wind river mountains they're they're known for you know it's a big rock pile with all these glacial lakes and uh you wouldn't think it's very productive but if you go to these lakes and you see the aquatic invertebrate life it'll blow you away you'll just see tons of uh caddisflies on the rocks along the shoreline uh amphipods which a lot of people call scuds and they really look like little freshwater shrimp they're very common and in high densities in a lot of the lakes and you know we manage for trout up there and trout need cold water and it's cold up there there's glaciers uh cold water temperatures um, so it's it's really good habitat for trout to survive and grow. And these are primarily
0: or are virtually all uh, cutthroat subspecies?
1: Cutthroat are the native species to the drainage, but we have all kinds of trout up there. I would say the vast majority of the trout up there are, are non-natives, like uh, brown trout. Brook trout are the most common. We have brown trout, rainbow trout grayling, and then uh, what the Wind River Mountain mainly known for are golden trout, which are not native to the Wind River Range, but we stock them for sport fishing. They're actually native to California. They're like a subspecies of rainbow trout. I'd say you could argue that the Wind River Mountain Range is the best golden trout fishing in the world just because of the great habitat conditions for golden trout. And that's what the Wind River Range is known for is golden trout fishing by by sport anglers. And we get people from all over the world that come to Wyoming to fish for golden trout, not just in the Wind River Mountains, uh, the Bighorns to the Bear Toots, but the Wind River Range is known as the best golden trout range.
0: And that's the point of this podcast is to give people kind of an idea of what to expect and uh, maybe uh, encourage them to visit these areas. So describe the hike in. I know you use llamas to pack in some, if not much, of the equipment, but Give the folks listening to this an idea of what they can expect if they take a hike into the Wind River backcountry.
1: So the Shoshone National Forest has a great maintained trail system. So there's uh, multiple trailheads in the national forest, uh, both by Lander and by Dubois. And uh, so you'll drive to the trailhead, and again, most of the maintained trails will get you to different river drainages in the mountains. You can uh, find campsites. Uh, you know, just different places off, off the trail. Most of the lakes and streams are gonna be a little bit of a hike Off the trail, but uh, the hike in it's uh, even though they're maintained trails, it's a pretty rugged range, very rocky. The reason we use llamas a lot more than we use horses is because uh, the rock, the rocky footing isn't very good for horses, and uh, llamas seem to do a lot better. There are some trails where uh, you definitely do not want to take a horse on, but you can bring llamas there, they just uh, have very sure footing but when you hike in you want to be prepared it rains up there a lot Uh, more days than not it's going to rain sometimes it's just going to be a couple quick 10 minute storms but they can soak you pretty good so you always want to have your rain gear Another point I'd like to add, Ray, is that the Wind River Mountains are bear country, and anyone going up into the winds needs to be ready for that. We strongly suggest that everyone carry bear spray. That's the best way to protect yourself if you do have an encounter. The other thing is just uh, you know check our website and just use bear safety rules. You know just common sense stuff like no food in your tents, no toiletries in your tents, camp far away from your cooking area, use uh, either bear-proof canisters for your food and toiletries or hang your food in a tree. And you want to use you know a branch that goes far away from the tree. So a bear can't just climb the tree and reach reach your bag. You want to hang your food or use bear canisters. Uh, some people think if they bring stuff up and put it in the stream, the bear is not going to get it. That's not true. They'll get your food or your beer or whatever you bring up if you put it in the stream. Um, so yeah, just use. Bear safety rules. And then when you hang your food, don't hang it by your tent. Camp far away from where you store your food and your cooking areas. And uh, so just know that you're going into bear country and take the proper c- precautions, please.
0: So after these lakes are sampled, I guess, first off, talk about
1: how we, how do we sample these lakes? The main way we sample the lakes is with gill nets. And if you don't know what a gill net is, it's uh they're the best way I could say they work is like it's like putting a spider web in the water. The fish can't detect it. They're about 150 feet long, they're six feet high, and they can either sit up on the bottom of the lake and sample the bottom six feet of the lake, or they can you could uh, make them float and they can sample the top four to six feet of the water. We usually use sinking nets. That's definitely the most efficient way to catch fish in the lakes. But I'm not going to lie, we use some hook hook and line angling, too. I mean, why not? We're up there. It's obviously fun, but we can get some extra data by the fish that we catch by angling. But the gill nets, it depends. Sometimes we set them overnight. Sometimes we set them just for a few hours. Um, it it kind of depends on the logistics and also how much data we want to collect. So if I'm, if it's a high priority lake, mainly if it's one we stocked and we want to continue evaluating our stocking practices, I try to set an overnight net because it'll soak for longer. It'll catch more fish and it'll give me more data such as uh, how many fish, size of fish. Sometimes we can... Uh, gets uh, bony structures off the fish and bring them back with us and look at them under a microscope and they'll have growth rings just like a tree. We could tell how old the fish are. Uh, But sometimes logistics, say a lake is really far from camp and there's no way to camp anywhere close to it because it's so far above tree line and we don't stock it but i mean there's some lakes up there still that have never had a net dropped in them and we think they're fishless or you know some lakes we just know are stunted full of stunted brook trout and but we haven't sampled it in 20 or 30 years you want some updated data sometimes i'll just go up there throw a net in a lake for a couple hours go to another lake throw a net in for a couple hours and then come back and pull them just to get some some updated data But another thing we do a lot is uh, we use hook and line sampling in streams. We try to get stream data up there, too. And when we're not in the wilderness and we can drive to areas, uh, we use electrofishing a lot uh, to catch fish. But that's not really possible in the wilderness because we have to have batteries up there and you can't recharge the batteries in the wilderness. You need a generator and you're not allowed to have gas powered you know, anything gas powered with a motor in the wilderness. Uh, we might be able to get some special permission if we wanted to, but it's really more of a hassle and how are you gonna pack a generator into the back country? So uh, we do do a fair amount of hook and line sampling too in the streams to, to just kind of get updates on what fish are in different reaches of streams.
0: As an aside, when I was there uh, years back, Uh, we had a couple of fish that uh, they had cut open, and I noticed that the fillets were much more, uh, uh, seemed like they were a deeper red almost. Uh, What's up there?
1: So, yeah, it seems that fish that eat more zooplankton, their fillets are very orange or red, and, and it I think it just makes them a lot better eating just kind of like the Pacific salmon that you see, you know, before they return to the rivers, they're, they're out there, you know, they're spending years out in the ocean eating plankton. So the fish that eat plankton, like the scuds or amphipods that I mentioned earlier or different types of uh, zooplankton, like Daphnia copepods, things like that. It's, it's kind of a, their diet makes their flesh more red or orange. Um, you, you'll also find some lakes that don't have a lot of, amphipods or plankton and they maybe eat other fish or more benthic invertebrates and you just notice that their fillets aren't quite as red or orange but um it just depends on the lake
0: you mentioned some of the things about uh you know uh, the the data that you collect but i guess more specifically what kinds of data are you collecting and what do you what are you looking
1: for Sure, so I could give a couple examples. I'll start with our helicopter stocked lakes, which are are the ones that we most actively manage because we can, you know, if we change the number of fish or the frequency of fish, that can have an effect on the population. So for example, like I might go to a helicopter stocked lake and I put an overnight net in and I don't catch many fish, but I catch a couple, pretty fat fish, pretty good sized fish. I'm probably gonna recommend that we increase the number and frequency of stocking because that lake can support more fish. On the other hand, I might throw a net in a lake and pull it and I catch a whole bunch of really small skinny fish that tells us that we're overstocking that lake and uh, most anglers would probably like to see a few less fish but uh, catch some bigger size fish that have a little bit more meat on their bones and so we'll recommend probably stocking less fish when we stock those Uh, another big push we've had over the past probably six or seven years you know, I've, I've talked about sport fish management for the most part, but there's native species conservation and I mentioned that there are, cutthroat are native to the drainage, the drainages that come out of the Wind River Mountains. A lot of the lakes were originally fishless, but because uh, cutthroat aren't doing as well in the lowlands, even though they may not have been present in those lakes a couple hundred years ago, uh, we still consider them native and we, we put them up there for conservation populations and a lot of those cutthroat were stocked um, in the late 1800s. There's some people that think that uh, um, maybe even Native Americans moved fish up into the Wind River Mountains, and that those would have been cutthroat trout because that's the native species. So right now, Yellowstone cutthroat only occupy about 40-some percent of their original range, and uh, we're trying to conserve what's left and even do some enhancements. But we don't know where a lot of the cutthroat in the Wind River Mountains came from because prior to the 1940s, we really didn't keep stocking records. There could be fish that were, you know, stocked after the Lewis and Clark days, like in the late 1800s. And we just don't know that. There could be indigenous populations of cutthroat that maybe made their way up there through different glaciations, or maybe Native Americans stocked them. We just don't know that. And all those populations will have different conservation priorities. So we can use genetics to identify, you know, indigenous fish, fish that were stocked. Our brood sources are either from Yellowstone National Park or uh, Paint Rock Creek in the Bighorns. So we can, the genetic can do nearest neighbor analyses and say yeah like these fish were uh, you know there's no stocking records but they're definitely from Yellowstone National Park and probably stocked before 1940 and Dr. Catherine Wagner and her PhD student Will Rosenthal they're doing a great big range-wide genetics project with uh, Wyoming, Idaho and Montana and over this six, seven, eight-year period we've been trying to get fin clips, just little pinky fingernail size fin clips from every cutthroat population that exists in these states uh, that are Yellowstone River cutthroat and they can use that as a genetic fingerprint and the fin clips are non-lethal so we're we've been trying to get up and get up to 30 fin clips from different cutthroat populations and Will and Katie have all these fin clips now and they've started the analysis and it's probably going to drive our conservation strategies for cutthroat for decades where we're going to figure out where we have indigenous fish where we have you know stock fish but, uh genetically pure fish that are still of pretty high conservation value. And where we have fish that have may have been hybridized with non-native fish like rainbow trout and golden trout, and we can assign different conservation priorities. So that's been a big push for our work recently, too. And a lot of the trips are kind of a combination of both. We'll hit a drainage that has cutthroat and we'll get our genetic samples, and then we'll go to some lakes that we helicopter stock, and then we'll go to some lakes that that have naturally reproducing populations that are wild populations, but we just needed to update our information on those lakes.
0: It's probably at this point we ought to explain to folks how it is we stock in these areas.
1: Wilderness lakes are stocked right now by helicopter. Uh, back in the day, they would pack them in by with horses, but helicopter stocking is... Um,' just a lot more efficient. It's a lot less time. Um, it's expensive, but if you think about all the manpower it takes and and just probably reduce survival of the fish by packing in them in with horses, helicopter stocking is the way to go. Um, I mentioned earlier, that you're not allowed to have anything motorized in the wilderness, but we're kind of grandfathered in with the Wilderness Act, um, any of those lakes that were stocked aerially before the wilderness designations. We're still allowed to helicopter stock those. We do have to uh, coordinate closely with the with the Forest Service, and they're they're good to work with. And uh, uh, that's just kind of the the memorandum of understanding agreement that's been signed by the Forest Service and Wyoming Game and Fish Department. So, yeah, the helicopter stocking is what occurs. We're mainly on an every two year stocking schedule for the lakes in the Wind River Mountains. We can't stock every year, but stocking every two years really keeps up the population you get just consistent stocking consistent recruitment of recruitment of small fish growing into bigger fish and really seems to create we get the best bang for our buck by stocking every two years it's frequent enough where we get good sport fish populations but we don't need to stock every year and, and save some time and money that way
0: So uh, folks that uh, are interested in heading up here this summer to do some fishing, does the Game and Fish have on our website an ability for folks to scan those areas and find which of the lakes are good for fishing?
1: yeah absolutely i'm really glad you brought this up so uh the wyoming game and fish department on our website has this interactive fishing guide and it's a great tool it has every single stream and lake in wyoming just on a map and it's a great search tool say uh for example, you want to, uh, you're going to the Silas Creek drainage where we went last year, and you want to know what fish are in the lakes. All you have to do is find the Silas drainage on our map, click on a lake, and it'll tell you what fish species are in that lake or in that stream. And then on the other hand, just say you don't know the country very well yet, and you're coming from out of state, and you just want to go up somewhere and catch golden trout. You can just type in golden trout, or there's actually because uh, so many people want to come and catch golden trout we actually have a little checkbox because we get so many questions on it a checkbox on the map where you can just check that box and all the lakes and streams with golden trout will just light up and then you can just look at that map and start making your plans to to go in the mountains that way like you know just uh how far you want to hike in how many lakes have golden trout or if you want a different variety of streams like the Silas Drainage, which I've used as an example a lot, there's one lake with golden trout, but we have Yellowstone Cutthroat, Snake River Cutthroat, Tiger Trout, and Brook Trout in different lakes and some people want to knock a bunch of species off so you can just get online and do searches that way and it's, it's such a great way to plan your trips. Of course, I mean, big part of my job is helping anglers catch fish and I get a lot of phone calls and I'll take them anytime, but, uh, you know, especially in the summertime, I'm out of the office a lot and I will return messages as soon as I can, but, uh, you can really get a good head start by just getting on this interactive fishing guide and, uh, you know, doing most of the planning of your trip. It's a lot more efficient, but again, of course, a lot of people call me and the other fish biologists that manage uh, the Wind River Range and you know they want to know s- the most recent sampling results, sizes, numbers, where to camp, what trailhead to use and of course we're happy to answer all those questions and, and help people out but that interactive fishing guide it's uh, going to save a lot of people time by just using that that resource to get a lot of your planning done uh, instead of spending a bunch of time on the phone or getting online and trying to get looking at different blogs and that sort of thing you can just uh, get on that interactive fishing tool and get most of if not all of the information that you need
0: well, we want to remind folks uh, as far as our stocking efforts go we have videos on the game and fish youtube page about how we stocked uh, back in the old days before helicopters. And then we've got some updated stuff where we actually are using helicopters. So Paul, one more question, we'll, kind of a two or three part thing, but uh, limits, what is good to use in catching some of these fish and optimal times to go into this backcountry area?
1: Sure. So I'll start on limits. Uh, We do not have, at least in the Proposia and Fitzpatrick Wildernesses, we do not have any special regulations. It's just your, you know, your statewide fishing regulations. As far as what to use, most people go up there and fly fish. For the most part, you can use about anything. Uh, if you open up fish stomachs up there, they eat a lot of scuds. They eat a lot of midge larvae uh, or chironomids. You can, you know, try anything. You know, I, I like elk caddis. Parachute flies are pretty fun to use. It's kind of surprising, but we catch a uh, golden trout on black ants a fair amount. If you get up there when uh, the golden trout and the rainbow trout and cutthroat trout are spawning, egg patterns can work pretty well. At that time, the fish move a lot into the streams, into the inlets and outlets, and so egg patterns can work pretty well. At those high elevations, a lot of the spawning for rainbow, cutthroat, golden trout happens late July into early August. Of course, it depends on the on the elevation, but it really seems like the higher the elevation, the later the spawning occurs. If you're not a fly angler, you can uh, use little spinners. Uh, little panther martins are my favorite, and it really seems the, the orange ones with the red dots seem to be most people's favorite, including mine. But you know, just any color, silver, gold, black, pink, whatever color you want to use should work pretty well. Uh, some of the lakes actually have lake trout that are pretty deep. So if you get to those lakes with lake trout, you want to get to a shoreline that's drops off deep really fast. And I like using big cast masters. Uh, you're going to lose them in the rocks sometimes, but if you just cast off the shoreline and 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 kind of Jig them in, uh, you can get good numbers of lake trout in some of those lakes. The best time is right after ice off, but that's complicated. So right after ice off, the fish have, uh, you know, they're, they're coming out of winter, they're, they're hungry. You know, that's when they start to eat more, put on more weight and grow, and they're definitely hungrier right after ice off. So you definitely get your anglers that want to get in there as soon as they can, but that's tough, especially like this is, this winter has been a lot of snow and there's been some winters like this one where ice don't come off some of the lakes till middle of July. And, but then there's other winters like last winter where we didn't have much of a snowpack and people are getting to those same lakes and fishing them in mid-June so it just depends we get a lot of calls on when the ice is going to come off and we can't really answer those because I mean you know Ray we we get snow sometimes even in early June and uh, you can get a pretty good idea in a winter like this the ice is going to come off later but i mean we've had years where we haven't had much snow we get these spring snowstorms, and we get a cold spring and people think they're going to get up there early and they have to wait you just never know but yeah the diehards try to get up there right at ice off and uh it can be rewarding but you got to be careful because uh Uh, If you try to get there right at ice off, chances are you're still going to be camping in snow up there. And uh, you just need to be prepared for winter conditions, winter camping, post-holing, or just getting to a snow drift in the trail that you can't get past. So there's definitely, you get your diehards that try to get up there early at ice off and uh, they get, you know, miles and miles in and they can't go any further and they got to turn around and try a week or two later. And it's easier for locals, but it's tough for people that come from out of town that, you know, plan their summer vacation. So ice off is the best. Um, spawning can be good sometimes if you uh, drift egg patterns or, you you know, they're, they're aggressive and, and uh, uh, you can catch them in the streams and they're a little more aggressive and can hit your flies or spinners.
0: Well, it was one of the most memorable experiences I ever had in my life going up there. I've got to spend uh, two or three days. Amazing country. You get to do it
1: every single year. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunate to uh, be able to, to do the work that we do. It's, uh, it, it's really enjoyable. It's been a good chat, Paul, and I appreciate you doing this for me.
0: Thanks to our guest today, Wyoming Game and Fish Department Lander Region Fisheries Biologist Paul Garrity. Music for this program is by Track Tribe. Get Outside with the Wyoming Game and Fish is a production of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, produced in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Thanks for listening.